You are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2021 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting held at Cedar Lake, Michigan. We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen. Father in heaven, we just count it a joy and a privilege that we can be in your presence once again. I just want to pray for my friends this morning that you would draw their hearts to you. You would help them uh, hear your voice this morning and that your spirit would come and just be in our midst. And Lord, draw close to those who may be struggling today. Maybe they have uh, death in the family. Maybe there's a sickness. Maybe there's a struggle in the home, the marriage. Maybe they're wrestling with temptation. Whatever it is this morning, I just want to lift them up to you and ask that you would cover them with your grace and you would just touch their heart and their mind and draw them, Lord, to you. Make a way of escape for them in some capacity, whatever it is. And if there is, if the situation can't be changed, then give them strength to endure and peace to uh, be able to uh, just experience whatever it is that you want them to know. So we lift ourselves up to you, Lord, today, and we give you our thanks. And we come in Jesus' name, amen. One in five Americans now claim no religious affiliation. That's very interesting. That's 20% of people. And some people will say, oh, I'm spiritual, I'm just not religious. Those people are not included in that number. Agnostics are not included in that number. These are just stone-cold atheists, 20%. So the percentage of people that believe very little is considerably higher, closer to like 50%. Protestant churches across America are closing by the dozens every week. Methodist churches are closing weekly. In fact, there was one just down the road from my house that went up for sale. There's a Lutheran church in Lansing that's just down the street from the Adventist church. The pastor called me one Sunday when I was pastoring at Lansing and asked me to come teach Sunday school there because uh, they wanted to know about Adventism. So I gladly did that. That church is now up for sale. Churches everywhere are up for sale. The spirituality of America is declining and the belief of no God or, or just whatever is significantly increasing. Thomas Carlyle makes a statement, if Jesus Christ were to come today, people would not even crucify Him. They would ask Him to dinner, hear what He had to say, and make fun of Him. Why is it that people are getting more and more bold in their attacks against Christianity? It's not for political reasons. Why is it? Yep. Now, I heard a lot of answers. I, I hear a lot of answers, and I'm gonna and I'm gonna say this sweetly and kindly with a smile on my face. Those are great Pat Adventist answers. Well, it's just the devils in all these people. Well, maybe it's because God isn't fully in his people. Look in your Bibles with me to Acts chapter four. <clears throat> Maybe it's not so much that the devil is in all these other people as it is that God is not fully in his people. Acts chapter 4. And uh, let's look in verse 7. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have you done this? What had they just done? Huh? They just healed a man. Right? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, notice it says, Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. He stood up in their midst and said, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if this day we are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man... By what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all, and by the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, 
by him this man stands here before you whole. And then he goes on and he says, This stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone, nor is salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, verse 13. When they saw the what? The boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized that they had been with who? When they saw the boldness. There are a lot of Adventists today that are bold. But they are bold in many of the wrong things. They are bold in telling people that they're going to go to hell or get cancer and die because they eat cheese. I'm not saying you should eat cheese or you shouldn't eat cheese. I'm not going to tell you what to do. God will tell you what to do. But we're bold in a lot of the wrong stuff. But we're not bold in the grace of God. And I want you to notice, when the power of God was displayed in the life of Peter, and God worked miracles through Peter, do you think God can work miracles through us? He can. I'm not preaching Pentecostalism or any of that. But I'm telling you, we're told that at the end of time, the miracles that we saw at Pentecost are going to be repeated. Right? There'll be healings and all these other things. There were those things in the Advent movement in the early days. But they saw the boldness of Peter and John. They saw that Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. They saw that these men had been with Jesus. Not that just, not just that they associated them with Jesus when He walked on the earth, but they saw that Jesus was living in and out of these men. Yes or no? Now watch this. Verse 14. So they saw that, and then they saw this. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could do what? <laughs> there it is. Why is there so much skepticism and so much atheism and so much attacks on Christianity? It's because the world does not see the power of God in the lives of His people. There is no power. There is no display of the character of God, or very little, I should say. There is no evidence. Go with me quickly to Psalm 19. In Psalm 19, you see three evidences of the great glory of God in the universe. Three. Okay? And let's look at them real briefly. Number one, the heavens declare the glory of God. What declares God's glory? The heavens. And the firmament His handiwork. Day into day utter speech. And dropping down to a verse... Um, Verse 4, the line has gone out through the, all the earth and the words of the end of the world. In them, he has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, rising from one end of heaven to the other, etc. So the first, verses 1 through 6, what is describing the character of God? Broadly than heavens, nature, right? But what have we done to nature in this world? We've pretty much messed it up, right? And can you still see God's glory in it? Yes, but is it as radiant as it once was? But So you have that aspect, and then you have the other aspect that instead of people recognizing a Creator in nature, they begin to see nature as the Creator, right? So that is fizzling as a way to see God's glory. What's the second one? Verse 7. The law of the Lord is what? Perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right. Rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. So what is the second revelation of God's character? More specifically, more broadly I should say, His Word. Yes? But are people reading the Word of God today? They're not. So God created the heavens and the earth as a testimony of His greatness. And when men began to reject that or worship that, then He gave His Word, right? Now men are rejecting that. So what's the third 
evidence of His glory. Verse 12. Who can understand errors? Cleanse me from what? Secret faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and I shall be innocent of great transgression. Verse 14 specifically. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. What's the third evidence of the glory of God on the earth? The character of His people. And the response that they give to those who reject God. You see, many atheists and many people of all kinds of persuasions, I believe, would readily accept God if they could find people on the earth in whom God exists. Amen? If they could see God's character in us, they'll respond. And many times, Christians are belligerent, they're argumentative, they are judgmental and critical. Now look, the, the, point, the other side of the coin is that many times the same people who accuse Christians of those things are those things themselves. Because it's a human problem. It's not a Christian problem or an atheism problem. It's a human problem. We all have sin. We're all naturally selfish. We all naturally are critical and judgmental and all these things. So it's a human. we're all hypocritical. There's not one righteous, no, not one. See? But let me ask you a very important question. Is it the right of those who do not believe in God to look upon those who claim to believe in God and see some kind of picture of the character of God? Is it their right to do that? Is it the expectation that God's people, those who claim Him, should provide that for them? And that's why we're told in the spirit of prophecy that the greatest evidence for God's existence essentially is a loving and lovable Christian. Amen? Now what love isn't, love is not a sentimentalism. It's not saying that, okay, I love this person, so everything they do is okay. That's not what that is either. But it's quietly and lovingly setting an example and putting your arm around the people when they're broken and when they need something more and when they're hurting because of the stuff they've done that hurts them and saying, there's a better way. Look right here, God has, the Scripture says that God has made a way of escape. Amen? There's a way out of this if you want to take it. Just like when Jesus knelt down beside the man at the pool of Bethesda and said, do you want to be made well? He had to exercise His will, right? And so that's what we're invited to do to people. Not to tell them everything they're doing is wrong, but to invite them to exercise their will to choose the path that God has for them that's better, right? Well, you didn't come here for a sermon, did you? You came here for a seminar. But I wanted, to, I wanted you to understand that the greatest reason why we see the rise and the boldness and the, and the emboldening of the concept of atheism in the world is because the world sees no power in the church of God. Because when those people who were the, were the, uh, the accusers, uh, James and John, when they saw the evidence of the power of God, what could they say? They just stood there with a look on their face. And I'll tell you, I have seen situations where the power of God was displayed and I've seen that very thing happen where a person stood speechless because they didn't know what to say. Now, let's keep going here. I told you about this yesterday. There is a, uh, there's these groups that are forming organized atheists. When I lived in California and I was working Amazing Facts, I was driving down the interstate I just kind of glanced over and I saw this exact billboard and I was like, 
did I, is that what I just thought it was? So I actually got off the exit and turned around and went back. And sure enough, and I pulled over on the side of the interstate and I took a picture of this billboard. Are you good without God? Millions are. Now this was back in like 2008 or 2009, something like that. Maybe even seven. And it was happening then. And it's even more so now. Here's another one. Coalition of Reason. A million New Yorkers are good without God. Are you? And they're wanting people to know, like, you don't need church to be a part of a group of people. The reason most people go to church is just for social reasons. But we can do that too. And even more than that, we can be good without God. We can do good deeds. Now, I think I have... Here's a, here's a few more examples of this. Um, student Freedom from Religion Foundation, that's another one. AmericanHumanist.org No God, no problem, be good, for goodness sake. And uh, I, I don't have the pictures in this one, this presentation, but there was a, there was a, uh, a news article about a group of people who have gone, they were celebrating five years of uh, helping the homeless. And you look at the pictures of them doing this. Every, every weekend, every weekend, they would go and set up tables and they would have a full meal for the homeless in their city. I believe it was in Texas. And they would give out packs of socks and, and toiletry items and all this stuff. And when you look at the pictures, I mean, you see like these sweet, happy families serving the homeless. Little kids out there, smiles on their faces. And young, nice-looking girls in, in their early 20s. And, and I'm just saying, like, they had no adornment on. No, they looked nice and clean, no tattoos. And they're smiling. You think, man, those people must be Adventists. Because only Adventists do that kind of stuff. And when you read the article... It is, I forget which one of it is, but it was an atheistic group. And they even had like this cake celebrating five years of serving the homeless. And then they had their name like it was something like, you know, like Texans, atheists, Texans, atheists for, for something, for good or something like that, whatever it was. And somehow we get this picture that because we go out and we hand a sandwich to a homeless guy with a smile on our face, that that's what being a Christian is. And it's not. It's part of it. But the atheists can oftentimes do those things better than us. They do do them better than us. It takes a weak people. And dare I say that there are probably many atheists who, as Jesus said to the one young man, you're not far from the kingdom. And they might be even close. I'm not trying to be here to beat us up and make us feel bad. But what I am saying is, what's the difference? What's the difference? Because the atheist is now claiming we can do good deeds without God. We don't need God to do that. But there's a self-sacrificing love of the Christian because the reality is that every human being is ultimately selfish. And there comes a point where we are not, a person is not going to give beyond a certain point. And the Christian has a changed heart. A Christian has a life that is wholly dedicated to Christ. And there, is, there ought to be a difference in how they respond to people, yes or no? And with those who hate us, those who disagree with us, those who are not like us, we have a self-sacrificing love for them. And that love is not in our hearts because of anything we are, but because of everything He is. And He puts that love in our hearts. And if we have any inclination to do something different, then it's, it's, um, it's not of Christ. All right, let's keep going. More copies of the Bible were printed last year than in any previous year. Although it is the most outstanding piece of literature ever produced, many enlightened Americans seem to know little or nothing about it. A Gallup poll conducted some years ago revealed that 60% of Americans did not know what the Holy Trinity was. 
66% could say, couldn't say who delivered the Sermon on the Mount. And 79% were unable to name a single Old Testament prophet. Surveys also indicated that 91% of Americans own a Bible and 85% consider themselves to be Christians. But only 40% say they are born again. How does that line up? How does that work? I'm a Christian, but I don't know that I'm born again. More than half believe their entrance into heaven will be decided based on their behavior during their life. And although 80% believe the Bible is the inspired Word of God, 61% believe the Holy Spirit is not real. Now this is mind-blowing. This is mind-blowing. And I've asked many Christians, even Adventists, how do you think, so do you believe that you're going to be saved? Do you believe that you're going to be in heaven? And they're like, well, what's the common answer? I hope so. I hope so. What? John the Apostle and the book of 1 John says, these things we have written that you may know that you have eternal life. We have to have assurance. Not a false assurance. And yeah, if I'm basing my salvation, what I believe, based upon what I hope, what I've done, then certainly I, I can probably be assured that I'm not going to be in there, right? If it's based upon what I've done. But it's not about hoping we make it, but it's about being sure. You understand? And I've asked, and then I've asked that person, well, well, what makes you what makes you hope so? What what are you basing your hope on? And they're like, well, I'm really trying to be good. I'm really hoping that I'm doing the right things. I I stopped eating this. I stopped wearing that. I stopped doing these things. I didn't. I don't watch this anymore. And it's not necessarily that it's not at all actually that any stopping things that are bad. Is bad. It's actually good to stop things that are bad. Amen? <laughs> Jesus said, go and sin no more. But if we think that that's what earns us the merit and credit with God, then we're deceived. Because you see, God already loves you infinitely, and there's nothing that you can do to make Him love you any more or any less than He already does. See? It's where many Christians are confused. They don't understand righteousness by faith. They were saved based upon His righteousness. And I'm getting off on all this. But this, this is very troubling right here. And I'll tell you that in Adventism, we're losing our roots and we're losing our understanding of the Bible as well. We used to be known as the people of the book. I guarantee you today that most... I guarantee you that probably many of us in this room could not give a simple Bible study on the Gospel. Just from memory, if I said, I want, you to give me, I want you to give me five verses on the Gospel other than John 3.16, I bet we could, some of us couldn't do it. I bet if I said, give me a ten-verse Bible study on the Sabbath, probably most of us couldn't do it. We're not reading our Bibles. We're camping and going to the grandkids' soccer games and we're doing all these other things and we're living life to the fullest and we are not a people of the book and that's why there's no power in the church and that's why the atheist says there's no God. Why does it matter? Well, because God told us it matters. 1 Peter 3.15 But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. How do you sanctify Him? John 17.17 17, Sanctify them by your truth. Thy word is what? Thy word I have hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Putting the word in our hearts. And always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is what? Notice it doesn't just say, tell everyone about the hope that is in you. Does it? It doesn't just say that. Should we be able to do that? Yes. But it says to give a what? Defense to everyone who asks you a reason. For the hope that is in you. So you ought to just not say, yes, I hope in Jesus. My hope is in Him. That's actually good, but, and it's not bad, but it's not all that God asks of us. He says you ought to have a reason and a defense for that hope. You ought to be able to intelligently explain it to others. Yes? 
and not just say, well, the Bible says, because yes, we believe in the Bible, but for the person that doesn't believe in the Bible, that's not very helpful to them, is it? You've got to give an evidence, a reason and a defense. And that's why we have something called Christian apologetics. What is apologetics? A lot of times people think apologetics means to what? Apologize. Uh, but that's not what it means. It actually means to give a defense, a reasonable, intelligent, thoughtful defense or response to an argument that's been made against what you believe. That's what it means. That's what apologetics is. So to defend the Bible to those who don't know it with pure reason and logic and external evidence without necessarily using the Bible itself. Now, the goal is to bring a person to the place where they can have some confidence in God's Word and then do that. But some people aren't there. And that number is growing all the time. And so people are not always in, interested in hearing arguments. I had a typo in there. I apologize. Apostrophe where it shouldn't have been. So atheism comes from the Greek words a or no, uh, meaning not or no, and theos meaning God. No God. It's not that hard. I believe in no God. No belief system of any kind of God. So atheism claims that the natural matter in the universe is all that exists. In other words, what you see in nature is what you get. That There's no divine uh, origins of it. There's no divine intervention of it. It is what it is and that's it. Secondly, that the universe operates only by divine laws. Uh, not divine laws, natural laws, sorry. The natural law of gravity, the natural law of physics, and etc. Thermodynamics. Number three, any event that seems to happen supernaturally is really some sort of natural occurrence. Now, here's an interesting thing about atheists and many scientific uh, atheists. Some of them, and they have confessed, that their sole purpose in pursuing science is so that we can get rid of our need for God. And, and so, during the Dark Ages, anything the church couldn't explain, what do they say? Huh? It's, yeah, or it's heresy, or it's just, just God does it, and we don't need to know how it works. We just need to know that God does it, right? And people kind of got fed up with that answer. And so they started to do studying and things, and they began to see that there were natural laws and those kind of things. And so many times the atheist today makes the false assumption that Christians are ignorant about science, firstly, and secondly, that anything that we can't explain, they just assume that we think God does it. And no, I believe, that, I believe in science. I'm a scientific person. I have a degree in science. And, but I believe that there is a divine power that has set those things in order. Because to me, one of the greatest evidences of the existence of God is science. And Ellen White talks about how true science does not conflict with faith. And God intended that science would be a deeper revelation of God and His character. Let me give an example. Mathematics. People think, oh, well, you know, mathematically... The truth is that we did not invent mathematics. We discovered mathematics. They were already there, you understand. They were already in place. They were already working. Before we discovered and understood what was happening, they were already there. The laws of physics were already there. We didn't invent them. We just discovered them and put a name to it, right? And so uh, anything that happens supernaturally, they assume that, we're, that Christians are going to just believe that, oh, that's just a mystery of God and we can't understand it. Well, no, we can understand it and according to the laws of nature. Um, and we don't just make that blind assumption that they think. Number four, the reality of evil, the purposelessness of life, the randomness of the universe, and evolution all argue against the existence of God. Atheism also claims that the Bible is a book of human invention and not the Word of God. And Jesus, if He existed, performed no miracles, did not rise from the dead, and certainly was not God, nor is any other God in any other religion, truly God. So, a couple of points about agnosticism. Agnosticism believes that there might be a God out there somewhere, but if there is, He's so far beyond us that we can't know Him or understand anything about Him, 
And there's no point in trying to pursue him because he's definitely not pursuing us. He's just out there doing his thing and we're down here doing our thing. And that's kind of the end of it, right? That's kind of what agnosticism believes. So they are more open to the concept of divinity than an atheist. But at the same time, they're pretty dismissive of it. Okay? But I want you to think about this. Both agnosticism and atheism claim that human reason and scientific empiricism are the only sensible explanations for why things exist. Okay, so scientific empiricism is data which can be measured. In other words, if I can't see it, if I can't measure it, if I can't somehow put it in a lab and test it, then it's not real, right? It's not really valid. There you go. <laughs> so, because no element of God's existence can be measured or tested, God cannot viably exist. And if the origin of life and the universe can be explained scientifically, then God becomes unnecessary in the equation. In other words, they believe that many people believe in God simply because there are things in the universe that they don't understand. And that must be the answer to it. Well, that's not what we believe. We believe not that in God because we don't understand certain things. We believe in God because we do understand certain things, right? And we understand that He put those things into motion. So here's another way of looking at it. How many know what the scientific method is, right? There's like seven steps, scientific method, and that's we, we test it over and over, and then it, we have a theory, then it becomes, or I'm sorry, we have a hypothesis, a theory, and then a law, because we've tested it several times. But and, and the scientific method is the standard by which pretty much everything is tested. What if it's flawed? It's because like some guy came up with this idea that must mean it's a thing. What if there's a better method of scientific knowledge out in the universe somewhere, and this is flawed? How do we know that this is truly true? You know what I'm saying? Like, there could be another method out there somewhere that's better. We have very limited human knowledge. Uh, and we, and the, we use this limited knowledge as the standard by which all things must be measured or tested. It does not take into account that all things in the universe can be measured this way. That everything can be measured by a lab or by measuring or by weighing or whatever. Let me give you a perfect example. This is my wife. Right? Amen? It's my ex-girlfriend. It's my ex-fiance. My ex-girlfriend and ex-fiance. Now, I'm not smiling very big because I had, at that time, I've had Bell's palsy three times. Anybody know what that is? So I was, this picture was taken in Ukraine, but based upon our closeness, does it look like we love each other? How do you know that? Can you measure that? Can you, can you, can you tell me how much? Can you tell me if it's really authentic and genuine because you can test it? No. Not everything in the universe can be tested in that way. Does that make sense? So just because a, a thing doesn't line up with the measuring stick that we have established as erroneous human beings doesn't mean it's not there. Does that make sense? Doesn't mean it's not real. So it's very, very important that we understand this. So to say that God doesn't exist because He cannot be measured is like saying that my love for my wife cannot exist because it can't be measured in a laboratory. It's the same thing. So you can't use that argument in a, a denial of God. The type of God that is described in the Bible may not satisfy the standard of the scientific method in human terms. He claims to be infinite, therefore He cannot be measured in whatever form you're trying to measure Him. So, in other words, people, the Bible says, that God is infinite. He cannot be measured. He's the highest of the high and, and, and the widest of the wide and etc., etc., right? And so people say, well, I'm going to do that anyway. And they take their own standard of measurement and they try to measure Him by that. And then when they can't do it, they get mad and say, He must not exist. Doesn't make very much sense, does it? But that's what happens every day, all the time. So, supposing, this was an interesting uh, statement made by, I think it was C.S. Lewis, 
He says, supposing science ever became so complete that it knew every single thing in the whole universe, could it also answer the following questions? Number one, why is there a universe? So we could explain everything there is to know. Can we explain why it exists? No. Number two, why does it go on as it does? And number three, does it have any what? Meaning. I don't, one of the most, one of the greatest frustrations of not every atheist, but many atheists, because now they say, well, you can, you can make meaning out of whatever you want to. One of the greatest frustrations is that there seems to be no purpose or meaning to life. Many will say love is just simply a chemical brewing in your body, and it literally means nothing. But the person who really thinks it through knows that that's not true, don't they? They, they understand that there is true love, that there is something about uh, the heart, the human heart, that, that longs for and desires to love and be loved. And that comes from something beyond us, doesn't it? Every human being wants to have meaning and purpose in life. And the truth is, science can do a lot of great things. I'm a scientific person. I'm not against science. But it cannot provide the meaning of life. It cannot define or understand love. It cannot do a lot of things that are very important to the human, to the human person. And so there has to be something beyond that, something bigger than that, that puts all the pieces together and gives and provides for that meaning. All of the, many of the cultures and societies that have tried to rid themselves of God, for instance, Napoleon was one. When he began to march into Russia, his secretary said, you, you're not going to be able to do this. And she pointed actually to the Daniel 2 prophecy and said, you will not be able to overthrow Europe because the Bible says it will never come back together again. You know what his response was? Not even Almighty God can stop me. That's what he said. Adolf Hitler said, all that we ask of God is that He leave us alone. That's what he said. And he used the Bible and he used Romans 13 to say every good Christian ought to obey its government because here it says it right here in the Bible. That's his, that was his extent of wanting to use the Bible. And we know that communism, when they have tried to squash out, you know, in Russia and China, they've tried to squash out the concept of God and the Scripture and they've outlawed it. What ultimately happens to all of these societies? They become animalistic. In fact... In fact, Adolf Hitler read about Nietzsche. Uh, he was reading Nietzsche. And he, that's where he came up. Uh, survival of the uh, fittest. He was also reading uh, you know, Dawkins and Nietzsche. And the concept of the survival of the fittest. And he said, we are the strongest race. The Jews are the weakest race. And so, why would we feel the need to wait hundreds of years or thousands of years for them to eventually phase themselves out when we could just simply speed up the process. That was his logic of thinking. And that's ultimately where, I won't say science, but evolutionary type of thinking leads to. It leads to the elimination of the weak when God says to uphold the weak. Does that make sense? And we'll talk more about that later. So, what does the Bible claim about itself? The Bible claims what? All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. That means that every passage, every book, has the influence of the divine on it, right? What did Jesus say about Himself? He said, I am the Son of God. Those are pretty hefty claims, wouldn't you say? I mean, if I came to you and I said, look, Last night, God just came to me and He appeared to me and I, and I talked with Him for like eight hours. And we were just face to face and He told me to write a bunch of stuff down and present it to you today. And I had this little book that had all my handwriting in it. And I said, like, this is the Word of God. And not only that, like, it was, it was amazing to me, but He told me that like, I'm, I'm His Son on earth. Like, I'm divine. And that you should all worship me. How I many would think that would be 
something you would like to do. How many would hang around for part two of my seminar, right? <laughs> We're going to bring out the Kool-Aid and, and the, all these things. I mean, you would find that very hard to believe. Oh, these are my, these are my daughter's... Uh, she gives me my Sabbath morning uh, encouragement, you know, so I keep them in my Bible. So you wouldn't believe it, would you? Well, think about this. You're going to an atheist and saying, this is God's book. Jesus is God's Son. It's like, what? Really? It's the equivalent of me doing that to you, that you do it to them. Do you understand that? And so how do we know that this stuff is really true? Where's the evidence? And uh, there's a statement I think is very cool. It says, why don't the names of Buddha, Muhammad, or Confucius offend people? The reason is that these others didn't claim to be God, but who did? But Jesus did. The difference between Jesus and all these other philosophers and religious leaders is that Jesus made the claim to be God and others made that claim about Him. And that creates a difference because the, the moment... Our sinful, our sinful natures are such that we're selfish and we want to avoid God because the moment we encounter something higher than ourselves, we immediately think about the accountability that I may have to that person. And that creates a struggle in our hearts, doesn't it? It creates a sense of judgment and condemnation because we know. But as long as we're around other people like us who are also selfish, then we can feel good about our selfishness. And we can begin competing about our goodness. You know what I'm saying? And we can actually create gods that are like us. Rather than us being like Him, we make Him like us. And then that's all cool, because now we don't have to feel bad about ourselves. Right? But the reality is, with God, in order to have peace, you have to feel bad about yourself first. You have to come face to face. And we don't want to do that. And so, so really, you know, these other philosophers, they don't really do that. I mean, the, the solution for sin and Buddhism is just to meditate above it. Just don't think about it. Just numb yourself and think about something else, right? With, with Islam, just do more good than bad and you'll be okay, right? Um, and so all these things are very, very much true about humanity. So how can I have confidence? Well, some of these things will be a little review for you, but one of the most, to me, one of the most profound evidences of Scripture is that the Bible is truly the Word of God, is prophecy. You know, God says, I am the Lord. New things I declare before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Isaiah 42.8. Isaiah 46.10. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there was like none other before me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things that are not yet done. I want to give a quick illustration to you. Suppose that I told you uh, that I could tell the future. And I said to you, I have a list of a hundred things that are going to happen to you on a piece of paper right here. And I'm going to give this piece of paper to you and you're going to know that what I'm telling you is true when those things start to come to pass. And the first thing that I tell you is that when you leave this seminar, as you walk out the door, you're going to trip over something. And when you trip over that thing, you're going to look back and you're going to see a briefcase. And you're going to pick up that briefcase and carry it back to your campsite. And when you open that briefcase, you're going to find $10 million inside that briefcase. How many of you are going to believe me? You're not going to believe me, but guess what? You walk out of this seminar and you trip, what are you going to do? You are not going to keep walking. You're not going to do it. You're going to look back, aren't you? You're going to be like... And you look back and sure enough, there's a briefcase. You pick that thing up. You take it back to your campsite. You unlock, and you're like, you're like looking around. You're like you're saying, it's like, is safety coming down my loop right now? And you open that thing, and it's full of cobras. No, I'm just kidding. It's full of $10 million. There it is. And it's yours. What are you going to do now? You're going to come back to the trash can that you threw that list in and pull it back out, and you're going to be like, what's next? And then I'm like, if you're not married, you're going to be like, you find the most incredible spouse you've ever met, and yada, 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 right? And you go through all those things, and they all come true. 
suppose it was even a thousand things, and you get to 999, and that one thing, number 1,000, doesn't come true. So the one, number 1,000 is that spouse that you found, Brianna, that God has for you. He's waiting. He's coming. Number 1,000 is that you'll live happily ever after. But five years after your marriage, that person cheats on you and they leave you and they divorce you. And, and not only did it not come true, but the exact opposite comes true. How much confidence do you have in me now to tell your future? But wait a minute. I told you 999 things and they all came true. You mean you're going to throw me out just for that one thing? You'd be thankful for the other ones. But what could happen? I'd say, wait, 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 I'm really sorry about that one thing. Here's another list of a thousand. What has happened? Even though you had 999 that came true, the one didn't, how much confidence can you have in the next 1,000 things? You can't because... They all may come true, but you never know what? Which one's not. Are you with me? God says, I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from the ancient times things that are not yet done. God puts His, His reputation on the line. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. He says, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen in the future. And he says it with such boldness and confidence, I'm never going to be wrong. I'm going to give you a list. And here it is. And you're going to see that all of this is going to come true. If one of those things ever doesn't come true, then what do we have to do with the Bible? It has to go. But guess what? He has never been what? Wrong. Now let me tell you, the writings of Muhammad, the writings of Buddha, the writings of Confucius and every other normal religious leader. You got wackos, and you know they don't come true. Obviously, we know that that they're not true. But no other mainstream religion claims to be able to foretell the future, except the Bible. And guess what? It did with a hundred percent accuracy. Now, as Adventists, as Adventists, we take this for granted. But this is mind-blowing evidence, you understand. This is what led me away from atheism and into Christianity. Because I saw that the Bible predicted thousands of years of world history with detail and total accuracy, without an error. And it basically unveiled the whole future of the world thousands of years before it happened. That's not something to just dismiss. Oh yeah, we've heard that all before, all of our lives. A cultural Adventist says that. A cultural Adventist who's not converted says that. You understand? Who really doesn't grasp what that means. When I first saw the 1260-year prophecy, like my mind was completely blown. I was like, man, that was just like a little over a hundred and some years ago. And this stuff is coming true and it was written thousands of years ago, right? I mean, we can know with assurance that this book speaks the truth just because of the evidence we've seen of how it foretold the world unraveling. Four world empires, Cyrus the Great, I mentioned all these things. I mean, these are just a few examples. Um, the things we see happening in the world today. How you think of Daniel 2, the, 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 the head of gold, the chest and arms of silver. If you drew a line just under the head of gold, just into the chest and arms of silver, that represents right about the time that Daniel died. Right? He died about that time, just into the Medo-Persian Empire. Yet he foretold 20, over 2,500 years of world history with perfect accuracy. And in chapters 7 and 8 with great detail in 10 and 11. How could a man foretell 2,500 years of world history with 100% accuracy? It's not even fathomable. It's not even possible. Are you with me? It's not even possible. And that's what I realized. And so I've presented these things. I've had atheists walk into my seminars, my Revelation seminars, coming in to mock and leaving believing. Amen. Leaving believing. Because these things are strong. So to me, prophecy is one of the greatest evidences.
And Jesus fulfilled more than 300 prophecies in His life. Uh, I mean, the odds that one person can fulfill just eight of the 300 prophecies about the life of Jesus is that number right there. I don't know that one person has ever, that many people have ever even lived on the earth, right? I mentioned archaeology. It's time to quit. So what I'm going to do is we're going to pick up here tomorrow, okay? And I'll move a little. I won't preach a sermon tomorrow. Uh, but I want to... Um, what's that? Prediction? Yeah. Hey, brother. Look. If you, if you find it, I'll... If, you find, if I find one, I'll split it with you. How about that? So who said, do you promise? I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see them after when I said I won't preach a sermon tomorrow. Who said that? No, I'm just kidding. No, but I think it established a point that's very important. The reason we have atheism is because of failed Christianity. That's the bottom line. So what's the greatest argument? It's not, it's not necessarily to have all the answers that I'm going to share with you over the next two days. It's to live a life that's godly. To live a life that's filled with the Spirit of Christ and people will be drawn to that. Jesus said, if I am lifted up, I will draw what? All men to Myself. And women, of course. All mankind. And He didn't say, except for those really hardcore atheists over there. No, He said all men. And that's the great point. Notice this. Uh, we're going to close with this in my prayer. The devil has had a field day with a prejudicial assumption that if you have to be that you have to be some sort of moron to swallow Christianity. Far from being in conflict, Christian faith goes hand in hand with reason, common sense, and historical fact. And we're going to see more of that in the next few days that we have together. Let's pray together and then we'll uh, take off. Father in heaven, what a joy it is to just understand that the mind of the atheist is not an impregnable mind. They're just looking for evidence. And we can give them a lot of facts and figures and scientific things, and there are those things to share. And we should know them and share them. But the greatest demonstration of evidence is going to be your love for them shining through us. And we want to experience that. We want that to be the driving force of our life. And if we don't have that, may we give ourselves to you today and be reconverted anew. And we know in our own hearts if you're dwelling there or not. We all know that. We can fool everybody else, but we can't fool you and we can't fool ourselves. But if there's someone here today that has that experience, what would keep them, what would keep you from fully giving themselves to the God of heaven? And so I know that you're appealing to us today. Because you want the world to be lightened with your glory. So make us a people that are surrendered. Make us truly your remnant. Because our hearts are given over to you with no reservations. And we are following the Lamb wherever He goes. And Jesus is fully on the throne of our hearts. This is our prayer today. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. To listen to more of these presentations, you may visit the audio archives at misda.org slash audio2021 or search for Michigan Conference Camp Meeting wherever you get your podcast.